This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, imagine technology that can identify people from over 300 yards away, or the ability to store hundreds of thousands of documents onto a device the size of a poppy seed. These are just some of the projects underway at IARPA. The director discusses how their work is transforming intelligence gathering. And the last time there was any major intelligence reform was 2007. A former CIA officer joins us to explain why he believes now's the time for change. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, or IARPA, invests federal funding into high-risk, high-reward projects to address challenges facing the intelligence community. Catherine Marsh is the director of the office. Catherine, welcome to the program. Hi. Great to be here. So IARPA has four focus areas. One of them is in AI, which is across a lot of projects. What's the latest developments on that? We have key things going on in advanced facial recognition and advanced uh, analytics to give intelligence uh, professionals tools that give them insight that they wouldn't get otherwise using AI as a tool to enable that. So tell me a little bit about the facial recognition part, because that's sometimes people worry about that. It, it freaks some people out. A absolutely. Um, but uh, if you remember a few years ago when you had your license picture taken, it was straight on uh, because that's what we needed to be able to, you know, find bad guys, right? So uh, with the technology that's been enabled through this, we now can do off-angle recognition of uh, characters, and we can do that now with our most recent program, Briar, which is doing biorecognition from distance and range, because if you've got a little bit of wind, it impacts the image that you've got. So you've got to be able to improve that so that you can really catch the person that you're looking for. And so the capabilities that have come out of this program and, and the pre predecessors to it are the state-of-the-art that are used across the nation. Let's talk about quantum. That's one of your focus areas. And you guys have been working on it for like 20 years or something like that. <laughs> well, since 2008, so 15, yes. Okay, um, um, not doing the math, but that's yeah, okay. Yeah, so what yeah. can you tell us about what's happening with quantum? I mean, there's there are no quantum computers yet. No, because quantum is still very far away. It's a very complex, complicated, and fundamental science that's got to be worked on. And we talk about this thing, sorry, this is going to be geeky, called a qubit, right? But that's what's important to enable the next generation of quantum computing. Uh, but I will say that quantum technology that we developed on our program actually enabled Google to make their quantum supremacy because they actually um, bought the team that we were investing in at the University of Berkeley and took that technology to the next generation. So we're working on the fundamentals that enable, but quantum computing is not here tomorrow, okay? Um, but what you start to hear now is quantum is in a wide variety of other things, uh, quantum information science, quantum sensors, and so uh, one of the things I particularly worry about is are we taking something that was targeted for X and now we're expanding the reach, you know? 
And what does that mean, quantum supremacy? Can I mean, can you have supremacy if it yeah. doesn't exist yet? Uh, no, <laughs> but but they use that to say that they've made the highest mark, the number most stable ability to stabilize those things called the qubits, and also do some advanced uh, uh, advanced computer. Uh, exercises, if you will, to do some things that they weren't able to do before. So another project you're working on is called Smarty Pants, which mm -hmm. is the best name ever. Um, and it's it's about, so it stands for Smart Electrically Powered and Networked Textile Systems. Right. What is that about? So that um, name actually won best new name of the, the year by uh, some news service earlier in the year when we announced it. And that program is actually about taking um, the ability of your cell phone or your computer and weaving it into the most comfortable t-shirt you could ever imagine so that you have the ability to see, hear, and locate from the t-shirt that you're wearing. And so, or the comfortable clothing or the pants, whatever you were doing. So you're not gonna have those disconnects. And think about that from the uh, athletics uh, ability to do that and really know what's going on in monitoring your heart and health. So that's what I wanted to ask you is, you know, aside from intelligence gathering, which, which is your primary focus, mm -hmm. do these projects ever have uh, applicability to uh, commercial, the commercial sector? Absolutely. I love when we have dual use capabilities and for sure, if you think about our resilience program, which is our advanced battery program, we've got six different simultaneous efforts going on to increase the duration of battery technology, to increase the temperature range of battery technology, and all of that is being done domestically here with advances um, in capabilities from KMEX up in Massachusetts and Solid Power out in uh, Colorado, and the technologies that they're doing are gonna end up in electric vehicles as well as enabling the intelligence community to do our missions overseas where we have to. So talk about that that tech transfer piece, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's not the technology that's the hardest part, mm -hmm. it's actually getting it to where it needs to go. Absolutely. So really, really important for me is that you have to have an IC partner, intelligence community partner at the table at the beginning of the program because they're the ones who are going to help guide and shape where we take the technology so that we don't have our program managers going down sidetracks that might be uh, problematic or uh, the wrong way to go. Those partners are helping guide with what we call metrics, so those, those numbers that we have to go after to make decisions. And you know what? Sometimes we kill a program because we find that the partners are no longer interested in the capability or we don't meet the metrics that make it enabling. So having that partner at every program review, at every technology review, they're ready to catch it at the end because we only take the technology development so far and then they're gonna take it to operationalize it and put it into uh, service overseas or domestically or wherever they might have to use that capability. All right, Catherine, stand by. We'll uh, pause here and come back. Okay. Up next, we'll continue our conversation with the IARPA director, Catherine Marsh, on the other side of the break. Stay with us. We're back with Catherine Marsh. She's the director of IARPA. It's the R&D hub of the intelligence community. 
Catherine, tell me a little bit about uh, how many projects you're currently working on. Right now we're working on uh, about uh, 32 projects with another brand new eight projects planned for this year. So optimally we're running about 40 programs. Now 40 programs means that we probably have 240 to 250 contracts that are in place at any one point in time because a program has multiple R&D efforts against it plus independent T&E. Tell me about how do you figure out which projects to work on. So is there a demand signal that's coming from, you know, the, the rest of the intelligence community or from other places in government? So what we do is we uh, work with all of our uh, 18 IC partners and we identify gaps in capabilities. We're not about incremental change. We're looking for what can't you do today? What can't you do tomorrow? So that we're gonna make investments where they don't have the ability to do that. We're looking to give them new capabilities where they have holes and that they acknowledge. And so we're out there and we look for those gaps. We then try to find a great program manager with a great idea that will go against that capability, and then we bring them on board and we start a new program. So as you said, I mean, these projects tend to be high risk, high reward. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that the investment is worth it in the end? Uh, how do you know the investment is worth it? Well. Uh, Ultimately, we are giving new capabilities to the intelligence community partners, but along the way, we, um, we're very conscious of that. So we have metrics uh, that we hold every program accountable to. And that means that we make um, assessments every six months. Are you meeting those measures or not? And if you are, then you are meeting the goals that our IC partners want. In, in addition, we do independent test and evaluation. I like to call it trust but verify. I am not willing to hand something over if I don't know that we have that test and evaluation data that says, no, the partner said, the performer said they could do it, but we've tested and not only does it meet it, it exceeds it. And so that is how we ensure or we cut, right? We stop investments that are failing. And that's really important because you don't want to, uh, you know, stay tied to something that somebody falls in love with because it's a good idea. A good idea is a good idea. It may be too soon, it may be too late. Um, and we, we can't afford to do that. We're too uh, small an organization and our partners need. We talked about some of your projects uh, earlier in the program. Are there any other examples that you can give us of, of really interesting stuff or some success stories that you've had? So I think uh, really interesting stuff is our newest program that's coming out and we're going to have an industry day at the end of February. And that program is targeted at cyber psychology. And how do you get ahead of those computer threats, right? Not from putting up a firewall or putting in infrastructure, but getting at it from a psychology perspective, how do you find those bad guys and get inside their head? If you think about it, how do you hack a hacker or get ahead of that? And so that's a really cool new program that's out there. We've got a program that's going after space trash, right? Because if you remember a few months ago, uh, NASA wanted to do a, a spacewalk and they couldn't because there was too much uh, space trash that would have hurt the astronauts. Well, that same thing affects our satellites 
satellites, right? And satellites are really important, not only for what we're doing in the intelligence, for, for communications around the world. So getting ahead of that is really uh, another new program that we're going after. Tell me a little bit about your program managers and what their backgrounds are, what their expertise levels are. Uh, so uh, they have to be subject matter experts. So we bring on people because they've got a great idea and they're passionate about the work that they want to do. And so we have people who are psychologists, we have people who are uh, physicists, electrical engineers, battery technologists, um, psychologists, and uh, we actually even have one of our program managers who was a professional uh, basketball player in Europe. So it, it's really about the great idea that you have it's, and that you really want to come. You've got a passion for doing that idea and you're only going to be here three to five years. And then you go back out to the private sector or onto some other aspect of your career. So it's a short-term um, high reward uh, investment of your time to come to the intelligence community. Well, IARPA is modeled on the ARPA model, right? Yeah. There's DARPA, ARPA-H, ARPA-E, all yeah. those. Do you believe that that model is working? And if so, what makes it successful? Uh, Yes, I believe the model is working, uh, certainly for us, certainly for DARPA. What makes it successful is the rigor that we put into it using what I like to call the Heilmeier Catechism, which is on the wall at IARPA, it's on the wall at DARPA, and that is that framework for setting up the, the program to begin with. What do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? Uh, what, what are the challenges associated with it? So you're framing it up front. You're not just diving in. You've got to be able to address that entire catechism and enable that the state of the art is ready to make that investment before we're going to launch that program. So, yeah. And you're a, you're a PhD scientist, and I just want to know about, you know, encouraging girls and young women in the STEM fields and in public service. Ah, yes. Um, there's still not enough enough of us, to be honest with you. I thought there would be a whole lot more um, a long time ago when I started my career. But, you know, uh, it matters. We have uh, so many uh, avenues where you can succeed inside the government, across the nation, right? But, but we need you. We need you to participate in our programs and bring your uh, technical excellence to us. We offer the ability to get your hands dirty, to work in the lab, all the way up to being program managers, to running organizations. And if you had told me that I would be chief scientist at the CIA or running IARPA, when I was going to grad school, I would have told you you were crazy, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, I have been very fortunate to have fabulous mentors. One of the things that I do, and it is incredibly important to me, is I take care of my people. And uh, mentoring the officers and the young uh, uh, scientists who enter into the intelligence community and help them find paths, find new opportunities, find those uh, jobs that will help them blossom and, and take their technical excellence and move it on to uh, that next level. Really important. Catherine, so nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the federal government spends about $90 billion a year on intelligence efforts, but our next guest says lawmakers need to rethink where that money's going. He joins us next to explain why.
It's been more than 20 years since the last time there was any serious talks of reforming the U.S. intelligence community. Ron Marks is a visiting professor at George Mason University Scar School of Policy and Government. Ron, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So let's start with the IC's budget. It's around $90 billion in total. Do you think that that money is being wisely spent? I'm not sure how much we know. Uh, you know, the oversight committees will look at you and say, of course, we are looking at this all the time. But number has tripled uh, since 9-11. Uh, at $90 billion is the fourth largest section now of the discretionary budget of the United States. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's being ill-spent, I'm just saying what are we spending it on? And, you know, we're putting a lot of effort into a lot of areas right now. But the world has changed since 9-11 and since 2004, which is the last time we really looked at structure, uh, the kind of areas that we really needed to look at, uh, the laws that guided, et cetera. So, it's, um, it's a little bit look like looking at the transmission on your car. No one finds it particularly sexy, except it's starting to drip from the pan a little bit. So the question is, how soon before we do something? And my advice is, well, you know, it's been 20 years. Let's see if we it's can do time. something now. Well, you know, most people remember uh, President Eisenhower warning about the military-industrial complex. You're warning of the intelligence-industrial complex. Explain that. It has, again, because of the simple overall growth, there's always been the presence of obviously of industry and of people coming in and out of government into industry, et cetera. But certainly within the last 20 years and certainly within the last 10 years, the overlap between those people who've gone in and gone out and are part of these associations and groups who had been former seniors and now they're outside and they're giving advice to the guys this inside. This is the revolving door. It's a revolving door. So and what's wrong with that, though? Part of it says, well, you know, it's not illegal. The other part of it, it says, you know, these guys think the same way. And do you want to have the same people thinking the same thoughts over and over and over again? And also, frankly, they get cozy. They get cozy with themselves. They get cozy with their ideas. They get cozy with the Hill. And the Hill very much, uh, you know, is involved in this process and have people who are working with them, if not on the committee, certainly in terms of political support, et cetera. I just think that we need to take sort of a deep breath on this one. This is, I understand for the military, and, and I'll guarantee you this will probably be as successful as Eisenhower's efforts, but we need to think about this. This is intelligence now. This is not the military. And this is a whole other different game I think we need to approach in how we approach it. So my advice is for the Congress itself, I don't know what the committees can do, but the Congress itself, you take a careful look. Is this what we wish to do? On January 23rd, a former uh, top FBI official was arrested for allegedly investigating a Russian oligarch's rivals um, in return for money, being paid very well for it. How damaging is something like that? I was reminded by someone who I greatly respect in the field of counterintelligence, a great old spy hunter, who said that they're, they're never surprised, they're only disappointed. Uh, this is a good example of someone whom, if I wanted to recruit someone, this guy was it. Uh, the idea of having someone in the FBI, in counterintelligence, in New York, who is involved in some of the most sensitive cases that we've had over the last 10, 15 years at least. Um, you know, these guys have, you, you find one there. He obviously, and even now, of course, everybody comes out of the woodwork. Well, you know, he had a bad temper and he was an egomaniac. And well, you know, on that basis, half of Washington would be fired. But the fact of the matter was he was vulnerable. He clearly had a little bit of an ego problem. He had a money problem and all the kinds of things that in the old days that I would look at and just smile and say, here he is. And the problem now is to go back and sort out what he was dealing with, who he was dealing with, what kind of information he'd have access to, what kind of information could he distort 
so there's a whole series of things that are now going to have to happen to clean this up, and this is at a very high level. Uh, this, this guy was really at the top end of our counterintelligence investigations in the U.S., and the Russians had him. And we've got ourselves, a, a, frankly, an intelligence mess at this point that it's going to take a while to clean up. Let's talk about economic espionage laws. Uh, you say that they need to be reformed. What's wrong with them? How should they be reformed? Well, I think because we were so big for so long, we didn't care. Uh, you know, I mean, we came out of World War II with half the world's GDP. We were still at about 25%. Well, there are other people who want to catch up now. And China, in particular, has been very aggressive from a state standpoint. Uh, and they've made no bones about it. The companies that are based in China provide information to the Chinese government at their requ request, quote-unquote. Um, so what you're now finding, of course, is that you're getting recruitments throughout American research and development and the military industry as such. Uh, for people who are collecting information on sensitive projects and research and development for the Chinese government. We haven't had strong laws on that. So if somebody, you know, turns over a very complex project, they might get, if they get caught, and the, the numbers on this are enormous, a director of the FBI has been shaking his head over just how many of these cases, you know, they can get, what, two, three, four, five years. Well, you know, is that worth it versus, you know, not getting caught and not, you know, getting the money from, you know, the Chinese, et cetera? We haven't dearly looked at those carefully for a long time, and those things, I think, really need to be strengthened at this point. All right, Ron, always nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Delighted. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to 
um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.